Hebrews 11, um, verses 13 through 16. Hebrews 11, verses 13 through 16. It's up here too if you want to read. These, these all died in faith. These, talking about saints. These saints all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would, not have, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And I think this passage is in the middle of, of Hebrews 11, where it's sometimes called the hall of faith, where it just it goes through all of these characters from the Bible, all these people who were real people, who had real lives, who trusted in God, though they didn't see exactly what he was doing, they didn't know exactly where they were going, they trusted him and followed him, and God did extraordinary things through their lives. And this, this chapter of Hebrews celebrates that. And this verse, this passage in the middle, saying that these saints, having died, seeing the promises of God, but they saw him on the horizon and greeted them from afar, they were strangers. Uh, they, they were exiles on the earth. Uh, strangers can also be said uh, like foreigners, and exiles would mean something like sojourners or pilgrims, those who walk through the world, who travel, who move forward. And these ones, these saints, just like us, are called to move forward trusting in God and his provision and his grace and his strength and his power that he would do what he said he would do in the promises of God. So I, I have three points in this, talking about being a people shaped by hope. Uh, the first point is this. We can't live in the past. And the second point is, we should learn from the past. And finally, the third point is, we are a people of the future. We are a people of promise. So first point, we can't live in the past. Like I said, I grew up in Minnesota. Minnesota is slightly chillier than Arizona, especially in the winter. And uh, I think right now it's like, five degrees or something, 10 degrees, and they have a pile of snow. But uh, when you grow up there, that's what you know, and, and your blood is much thicker, and it's easy, you just go out in your t-shirt, no, no big deal. Um, you grow beards, uh, that sort of thing. But, but uh, a really fond childhood memory I have is this place called Swenson Park. Uh, I grew up in, in a suburb of the Twin Cities in Minnesota, a suburb of Minneapolis, and we had this place called Swenson Park right, right by my house, and in that park was Killer Hill. Now, now, Killer Hill had, had earned its name because it was this relatively large hill in the middle of kind of suburban life, and we would go sliding on it in the winter. All the kids would come and slide, and, and the young kids would enjoy it and slide it, but it was the, the older kids that really were daring, and they'd build jumps at the bottom, and there was this place on the side called Snake Gulch where, like, it serpentined down, down the hill and had these big high walls, and you'd go flying through that thing, and, and it became icy when all these kids were on it, and you would, it would cruise, and you know, kids getting knocked over and knocked out and, and broken arms and legs. I don't think anyone ever died that, that I know of, but you know how it is, the killer hill. It's, you know, broken arm hill doesn't sound as good as, as killer hill. So it's, it's killer hill, and, and every, every year, my birthday's in December, that would be my birthday party. Have all my friends over, and, and 
when they come over, we all get suited up in our big, you know, one-piece snowsuits that are like bright green and bright red. We put our moon boots on, and we, we go out to the hill, and we carry these plastic sleds, and sometimes someone would have an inner tube, which was insanely fast, and we'd all go cruising down the hill, and they pile on each other, and laughing, and rolling, and, and f- faces full of snow, and bloody noses, and all of that good stuff, and it was such a fond memory for me. So uh, a few years ago, I was in that neighborhood, and I decided, well, I should just cruise by Swenson Park just to see it. We had moved away from that place a long time ago, and, uh, and so I did. I drove by it. And as I, as I pulled up to, to Swenson Park and looked at Killer Hill, my heart just sank. Killer Hill was no, was no killer anymore at all. It was tiny compared to the way I remembered it. I mean, how many of you have, have remember your old house where you grew up? You're like, that was a mansion. There were so many rooms, all these cool things around it. And then you go see it again, and you're like, are you kidding me? What? It looks, looks like an outhouse with a garage on it. <laughs> it's funny how, how when we're young, things seem huge and wonderful, and it's a whole land. But when you get older, you realize, oh, it's a lot smaller than what I thought. And that's what Killer Hill was for me. And, and, and I just, I'm telling that story because I want to illustrate something about this. It's really good to have good memories in our lives. It is. It's a good thing. Our past is a good thing. Our past is a thing given to us by God, but we can't live there. I can never go back to childhood sledding parties and Killer Hill. I can't. Even if I lived in the same place, I couldn't. It would not be the same. All these, all these people in their 30s, like, you know, hurting themselves and limping away and, and saying, I give up and whatever, you know, like, can't, can't even make it up the hill probably, you know. It's different, but life changes. We cannot live in the past as much as we want to. And I think there's two sides of this. One side is some of us look at, at, at our past lives with nostalgia, with this sort of air of romance, like the good life. Um, there's this song that, that uh, speaking of, of, of my younger years, uh, middle school dances, uh, where Brian Adams would sing um, two, two main songs. Everything I do, I do it for you from Robin Hood. It's a, you know, the soundtrack of super awkward middle school dances. And then his other song that I knew was um, The Summer of 69. And it's talking about getting a guitar and starting a band and falling in love for the first time and all these things. And in, at the chorus of Summer of 69, he says, um, those were the best days of my life. Now, when I hear that song, it never really struck me. It's no big deal. And we say, yeah, that's kind of cool. The good old days, like we say that phrase, but think about, think about the truth of saying, those days behind me were the best days of my life. What does that say about today for you? What does that say about tomorrow for you? So if they were the best days, is this just kind of a slow slide into death? Man, I hope not. That's not a very hopeful way to live. And, and as Christians, as Christians, that is how we are called not to live. In fact, quite the, quite the opposite. These aren't those weren't the best days of our lives. So that's one side of it. That's one side, the good side, the nostalgic side. The other side is this, the, the pain of the past. We certainly have all had pain in our past to differing degrees, I'm sure. Some have gone through really, really hard things, almost unspeakably hard things, abuse or abandonment, etc. all kinds of ways. And sometimes the past curses us and plagues us and we wear it around our necks like a ball and chain and that is not good either. We can't live in the past. We can't live in the good days of the past. We can't live in the bad days of the past because, because here's what happens. The gospel meets the past and when the gospel meets the past, it says this, 
the, the truth of the gospel dispels those sort of romanticized clouds of the good old days and lets us see what was truly good and that it wasn't as good as we thought, that Killer Hill wasn't as big as I thought it was, that our mansion houses weren't as big as they were, but they were good things. I really thank God that I could have sledding parties with my friends on that hill. And so it lets us see the truth of that, but probably more powerfully, I think the gospel meets the pain of our past, and it says, that is not you, and that is not your future. The gospel meets that, Jesus says, I have good news for you. I died for the pain of your past so that you could live into the grace of the future I have for you. And think about that. What it produces in us is joy. It's amazing. That's what happens when, when the gospel meets our past. It frees us from the past. It frees us from some silly nostalgia, and it frees us from deep pain, and it lets us be people of freedom who live today, now, in joy, knowing that tomorrow is good because God is good, and he holds us Think about Psalm 139, uh, all the days of your life are written in a book. Jeremiah 29, I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, to give you a future and a hope. Those are promises. And so all who believe in Jesus, all who call on the Lord as their Savior, those are promises for us. That's what the gospel does when it meets our past. So point one, we can't live in the past. Point two, we should learn from the past. I love how it says in Hebrews 10, just before the, the passage I read, uh, at the end of the chap- chapter 10, it says, recall the former days. And he shares about how you were enlightened in Christ and how you endured affliction. Recall the 10, Hebrews 10.32, recall the former days. And I, I looked up some, some people speaking about this, and one guy was John Calvin, and he said, in order to stimulate them and to rouse their brisk and cheerful readiness to go forward, he reminds them of the evidences of their faith of the past. I love that. To rouse their readiness to go forward, he says, look behind you. Look at what God has done. Look at his grace and his faithfulness. He has never left you and never forsaken you, and he never will. And now turn and look forward and go. That, that is how God takes the past and changes it from nostalgia or from pain into That's how he does it, by his grace, and it's amazing. So we look at these saints in in Hebrews 11, right? Um, It it goes through all these saints. Uh, Here's the list of people it names in Hebrews 11. Uh, Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses. It goes on and on. At the end, it's Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, all of these people who, who, didn't, who didn't get the full promise of Christ in their lives, yet they saw it from afar and they went towards it. They greeted it in hope, knowing that God was for them, that God was good. And just as a side note, um, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, uh, like, listen, we have a lot of Davids and Samuels. There's some Abrahams, some Noahs, some Isaacs around. Hey, where are the Jephthahs? So, uh, parents, the, you know, 2014, let's just see the whole crop of Jephthahs popping up. You know, this is the Bible. These are, you know, these are good names, so there you go. Jephthah. No, I'm joking. Don't, don't curse your child with the name Jephthah. <laughs> Sorry, Jephthahs, if there's any in here. <laughs> but let's, let's ask, as we're here, we have to learn from the past. Let's, let's define what hope is. As we, as we see God change the past from 
from kind of silliness or romance in, and, and pain into something good. What, what, is, what is hope? Well, hope is this. I thought it'd be easiest maybe to hit a few verses in Proverbs because they're quick and they're succinct. So hope, what's the definition of hope? It is an expectation. It is a desire and it is a trust all wrapped into one. Let's look at that. Uh, Proverbs 10, 28. The hope of the righteous brings joy, but the expectation of the wicked will perish. Now, if, if you look at this, the way Proverbs and a lot of Psalms are written, they're called couplets. They're written in twos, where really one phrase like this means essentially the same thing. Sometimes it's two sides of the same coin, but essentially means the same thing. And, and that helps us also in defining what words mean because a lot of the words are synonymous. So the hope of the righteous bringing joy is synonymous to the expectation of the wicked. Though they're different things, the righteous get joy and the wicked perish, but hope and expectation are synonymous in this verse. And so we see hope has this sense of expectation. Here's a sense of similarly, the future, Proverbs 23, 18. Surely there is a future and your hope will not be cut off. There's a future and your future is the hope of God and it will not be cut off. Here's another part of this definition. Expectation and desire. Proverbs 13, 12. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. Hope and desire. Synonymous here. A hope fulfills the tree of life, a desire deferred. You can almost do that. So we've got expectation, we've got desire, and finally, trust, trust, or in other words, faith. Psalm 130, verse five says, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word, I hope. I hope, I wait for God, and I trust in his word. I trust what he has said about himself and what he has said about me and what he has promised to me in his grace. I trust him. In his word, I hope. And so we've got expectation and desire and trust all wrapped together in, in this definition of what hope is. And it, it's rich and it's beautiful. It's Psalm 137 says, o, o Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love and with him is plentiful redemption. To trust in the Lord, we have love, love that never ends, that never ceases, and a redemption that is full and rich, not only of our souls being saved from hell, but of our entire lives being made right, being made righteous the way things ought to have been. God is redeeming it through his son, Jesus, and he redeems it by his grace in us. So um, I bet a lot of you will will get this, this this idea of trust. Um, When I was a kid, I have these pretty distinct memories of being in a pool with my father. And I would stand on the edge of the pool, and he would just stand there and hold his arms out, and, and I would jump. And I never remember, never remember in my head thinking, I don't know. I never like took out some paper and did some calculations about the odds of being caught or not. It was, it was that my dad was there, and my dad was strong, and he, he was strong. I mean, all boys think their, their dads are strong, but my dad was like a weightlifter. He weightlifted with cops, and so he could bench a lot. So he was literally strong. That's one of those nostalgic memories that's actually kind of true. Um, I still probably can't beat him in arm wrestling. But, but he was there, and he was waiting for me with these open arms. And I knew that every time I jumped off this edge, he would catch me. He would catch me. And I bet you, you have similar memories of that in some capacity of trusting someone, of knowing someone, knowing that they're there for you and they won't fail you. And likewise, when our Father in heaven 
asks us to jump into the world, he never drops us. He never lets us down. He never fails us. He always catches us and carries us and lifts us when needed and encourages us and supports us. That's what it's like to trust. And God's saying, trust me. And when I say jump, jump, even, even when the waters of life are very stormy, know that I am the one who controls the storms and I will be with you and I won't leave you. So we have this definition of hope, of expectation and desire and trust all wrapped into one. But maybe simply I'll just say this. Uh, hope is the conviction that, that whatever comes next in your life, whatever, will be good. It's pretty simple. Whatever comes next, I believe it will be good. That's what hope in God is. Whatever it is. The next minute, the next hour, the next year or decade of your life, the next happy thing, amazing thing, the job promotion or getting fired, getting, getting really healthy or getting that diagnosis that you don't want. That's, I believe that's a good thing. I have hope in God that he will take all of the things that seem bad and he will work them for my good. That's what hope is. It's a steadfast belief that whatever comes next is good. And so we walk into the future with hope, knowing that goodness is coming our way. That's what the promise of the Christian life is. Not easy, but good. This is what, what John Piper said about hope. I really love how we define this. He says, hope is the birthplace of Christian self-sacrificing love. Well, how does he get there? How, how is hope the birth of love? That's because we just let God take care of us and aren't preoccupied with having to work to take care of ourselves. If we don't have the hope that Christ is for us, then we will be engaged in self-preservation and self-enhancement. But if we let ourselves be taken care of by God for the future, whether five minutes or five centuries from now, then we can be free to love others. Then God's glory will shine more clearly because that's how he becomes visible. So we can't live in the past, but we can learn from the past. We should learn from the past. Not only our past, but the past of all of the saints of the Bible. When Abraham is called out of Ur, he, he goes to a city. He doesn't know where he's going, but he follows God, the call of God. When, when God says to Abraham and Sarah, Though you're like 100 years old, God doesn't say like, but he says, though you're 100 years old, you're going to have a child, and the child will be, will be the, the, the nations. You'll be the father of nations. It'll be stars in the heavens and sand on the, on the shore. That's how many children you will have. And they're old. And Sarah laughs at it. I mean, because if you know anyone who's near 100 years old, um, you say, are you going to have any more kids? <laughs> Yes, they laugh, rightly so. But that was the promise of God, and they believed. And Abraham was commended for it, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Or, or when he's going to sacrifice Isaac, he's called this, this promised child, Isaac. And now, God, you want me to sacrifice him? I, I love how Hebrews comments on Hebrews comments on that, that very passage. When it says... Um, this is verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises 
was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered, this is what he did, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Meaning this, picture this. You have this son you've been praying about and desiring for a hundred years and God grants it to you and your wife and there's joy and he says, not only is this a joy for you, this is a joy for the world. I have blessed you that you might be a blessing to the entire world. You'll be a father of the people of God. And then he says, now take him up to a mountain and sacrifice him, kill him. I mean, the sacrificial system was a real system and a good system that would spill blood in order to clean us from sin. But, Isaac, the promised son, and, and Hebrews comments on that saying, Abraham didn't, Abraham didn't know exactly what was going on likely, but he said, I don't know why God is telling me to do this, but I believe that God is powerful enough to even raise my son from the dead. So I'm gonna go forward. I'm gonna trust God. And of course we know that he didn't sacrifice Isaac, that, that God provided a substitutionary sacrifice, which is such a beautiful picture of what he would do in Christ for us. But hope in God, trust in God, that's what Abraham had, and he walked forward, and he did what God said, and God blessed him, and here we are. Abraham's children, we are. Not ethnically, but spiritually, we are heirs of Abraham, heirs of this promise, it's a beautiful thing. So, we can't live in the past, we can learn from the past, but number three, point three, we are a people of the future. Now, I know that sounds like, kind of like a, a sci-fi point, but it's not a sci-fi point. We are people of, of promise. We are a people of, of tomorrow. You might ask, well, why? Like, what's, what's the main reason why we are a people of the future? What's the main reason why we are a people of hope? And, and it's this. The main reason we are a people of hope it's because our sins have been paid for, but even more powerfully, Jesus is alive. Jesus is alive. He is not dead. Though he died, he rose again, and he rose again to gather us and to lead us into the presence of God. Because Jesus is alive, we are resurrection people, and it's awesome, and it should be. That is why we hope in God. That is the greatest proof that history will ever know that God loves us and God is powerful and God has conquered death and sin and he has brought us into it. The, the world will, will, will say a lot of things to us about hope. It will tell us to hope in a lot of things. I, I want to point something out too. Here, here's a big word that I learned this year in 2013 and I want to share it with you because I think sometimes this happens. It's called, it's a German word. Um, I, think, I think maybe we'll put it on the screen so you can see it. Yeah, there it is. <laughs> uh, I believe it's pronounced Schadenfreude. I don't know. If any of you speak German, you can correct me how badly I mastered that. But, but Schadenfreude is pleasure derived from the misfortunes and failures of others. Now, this, you might think this is odd, like, okay, point three, we are people of the future, and then we talk about this. But, but I want to point this out. How, how, often, how often in our culture... In our, in our lives, do we look at the world in a way that says, I told you so? As Christians, how often do we see headlines? Do we see failures and misfortunes? And we rejoice in those things, those failures, because it, makes, it proves that we were right all along. Now, uh, if, that, if that seems a little abstract, um, 
I'll try to drive it home in a couple ways. One, if you've ever been part of an organization that you were excited about, but then you had to leave for whatever reason, you were laid off or fired or moved on, how many of you have felt just a really, like it's secret, but it's in there, a tiny desire that that thing you left would fail? Because then, then they'll know that you were really valuable. Then they'll know that, that you could have been a key to success, but you weren't there, so it failed. I mean, I think a lot of us here probably felt that. I know I felt that. But here's another one. Um, when when we, we take joy in the failure of others, um, I, don't know, <laughs> I don't know how many of you voted for our current president, but uh, things aren't going super great right now, and uh, 2013 hasn't been really a landmark year of, of success for, for President Obama or for really our government in general, right? Um, I don't know, I also don't know how many of you have signed up for insurance on healthcare.gov yet, but uh, uh, it's, it's tough, right? And, and so if, if you did not vote for our president now, how easy is it to say, ha, see, I told you so. I told you that I was right for that other candidate. I told you that this guy was not gonna be good for us. And the problem with that is we start to see the world only as a curse and we start to define ourselves only by what we don't like and by what we hate and by what we disagree with. But I don't see that in the scriptures. I just don't, I don't see God saying, make sure when you tell people the truth of God that you, you go to them afterwards and say, I told you so, I told you so, now come to Jesus. It's a, it's a bad witness. That's not how it really works. People, you know, people love to be told I told you so and then, and then right off the bat you should, you, should be Je- you should be a follower of Jesus like me. That doesn't, that doesn't follow. So I think this happens. I think schadenfreude happens sometimes with joy, our pleasure in the misfortunes of others. But, but we are a people of hope. We are a people that where hope frees us to love. And love never says, I told you so doesn't. Love doesn't say, I told you so. Love rejoices with those who rejoice, and it weeps with those who weep. It seeks the good of others. It seeks the good of our neighborhoods and our schools. It seeks the good of our government, and it seeks the good of our cities, and it seeks the good of our families and our relationships. Even when we are wronged, love seeks to reconcile. Love seeks to lay itself down, and that's what kind of people we are to be. Not people who take pleasure in bad things, but who take pleasure in good things. And so we look at all these different things that, that the world tells us to hope in. Lots of them are, are really good things. Uh, the economy, how, how often do we talk about the economy in, in America in 2013? A lot. And, and it's not doing well, etc. but we hear about it so much. Maybe it's going to turn around this year, maybe it won't. But when, you know what that shows is, is that we hope in that. But Christians, we are not to hope in the American economy. We're not. That's our, our hope is in God. And we want, we want the economy to do well, but our hope is in God. How about our fitness? How about how we look? Like you watch those, those commercials on TV about skin care or about like uh, you know, uh, CrossFit or some like new silly uh, workout equipment you can get at home with like rubber bands or different kind of crazy things you do and, and uh, you know, you get like the six-pack abs and all that stuff. That's not where our hope is. Having a flawless skin and, and a, a really defined body is not going to make you happy. That's not where our hope is. Hope in knowledge and education. Uh, if I only had that degree, if I only had that technical degree or that bachelor's degree or if I only had that master's degree, then, then my life would be truly joyful. Then really things, then I'd really be on track. 
Um, here's another one that's big, hope in technology and medicine. I think one of the, one of the more exciting fields is, is biotechnology. It's amazing what they're doing. It's amazing, like they're talking about nanobots, which are really, 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 really small robots that go into our body and, and kill bad things. I don't know how it works. I'm not, I'm not a scientist or, or a doctor. Uh, but, but it's pretty exciting. However, uh, we easily put our hope in that, don't we? There's, there's a guy named Ray Kurzweil. He's, he's brilliant. He is a genius. He's a genius with technology and a whole bunch of things. I think he works for Google right now. I think he's like chief information officer. But he, um, Ray Kurzweil's been around for a while. He, he made up the way to play electronic piano, so pretty much every piano like this was, came, came from this guy in the 80s. But he is obsessed with biotechnology. He's obsessed with finding that, that gene of aging and reversing it, stopping it and reversing it. And he, he literally believes that maybe in his lifetime, I think he's in his 50s or 60s, we could find this thing that would reverse aging. He literally believes that he could possibly be immortal. And he pours tens of millions of dollars into projects like these, and he takes like 300 special vitamin pills a day because he wants to preserve his bodily life because he hopes in it. But that hope will inevitably disappoint him, and it will disappoint us if we put our hope in that money or, or bodies or reputation, technology, all kinds of things that we put our hope in and it will disappoint us. But as Romans 5 says, hope does not disappoint us. Hope in God does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's given to us as a gift God never disappoints us. Hope in God never disappoints. But there's, there's not a guarantee that this is easy or convenient, but it's true and good and right, and it, we are never disappointed by the hope we have on God. You know, as, as we sing this song, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. That's an awesome promise. It's an awesome truth of who we're supposed to be. So, Here's, here's how this applies to us, a people shaped by hope. I, I want to share with you something that, that um, has really encouraged me in the last several years of my life, and, and, and I sort of stumbled upon this while I was just doing some journaling about, I think it was a, a sort of a, a year thing. I was, I was looking back in my year and, and just saying, wow, really, really great things happened, and, and God was so good to me, and I was very thankful, and, and I, I, found, I discovered this sort of formula for hope, and it was this. Thankfulness for the past, that is seeing the past rightly and truly and being thankful for it, both good things and pain. Thankfulness for the past begets, you know, it's that like Bible word for births, produces. Thankfulness for the past begets present joy, joy today. And present joy begets future hope. When you look back at the past and you look back at all the promises of God and all the faithfulness of God, of all his people and of you personally in your own life, when you see that with thankfulness, it makes you joyful. You, can't, you can almost can't help but become joyful when you look back at the amazing things that God has done. And when you are joyful now, we look forward and say, I have hope for the future. Here's, here's a bunch of ways. Here's some attributes, I think, of a people shaped by hope. That we are steadfast. Uh, Hebrews 6 
17 through 20 says this. It, it uses the word anchor, and I love it. So Hebrews 6, 17. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Hope, steadfastness, our anchor is not in building walls around ourselves. Our anchor is not in biotechnology or in a strong military or in my bank account being well done, being, being good and my retirement account being safe. That's not where our hope is. Those are good things but they're not ultimate things and we don't hope in them. Our hope is in God and having that hope in God makes us anchored and steadfast. Another attribute is humility. God exalts the humble. First Peter 5 says it, James 4 says, uh, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that at the proper time he might exalt you. There's this other quote that floats around and I, I've heard that somebody said it, Ronald Reagan, but I don't think it was actually somebody else besides him. But it's this really true little proverb that says um, it's amazing what you can accomplish when you don't care who gets the credit. Humility. Doesn't have to be to, about me and to my credit. I want to love and I want to serve because I hope in God and I see a future. Forward moving. We are forward moving people. The whole, the whole history of redemption is, is hopeful, is built, is threaded through with a grace that moves and rolls and tumbles along and sometimes Sometimes totally insane things happen. If you're going to choose the king of the universe to come down and be king of his world again, you don't pick prostitutes to be in his line. You don't pick cowards to lead armies. You don't pick crazy strong men like Samson to go out and thrash whatever hundreds of uh, people he kills with a donkey bone. Like, that's not your guy. Like, that's, yeah, let's get a guy with a donkey bone in there. Let's make sure we do that. But God loves that. God loves taking the unlikely, the non-heroic, the rough around the edges, the broken, and raising them up in grace and pitching them forward into his plan and purpose, which is no accident, but is really beautifully designed and waiting for us to bless his people and to bring himself glory. So it's humble, it's forward-moving, it's intentional. I, I love this. Here's, here's a quote from a theologian, D.A. Carson, and he, he says this about drifting. He says, people do not drift toward holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate towards godliness, prayer, obedience to scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. They don't gravitate towards that. We drift towards compromise. And we call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience. And we call it freedom. We drift towards superstition. And we call it faith. That's sobering. And so if we are people of hope, people of the future, people that know that this world is going to get better because God is good and he is his world, he is redeeming it, then we don't just drift, but we have intention. At this point, maybe a little practical insertion here. Uh, Bible reading. It's December 29th. There's, there's only f there's two more days of this year, and then we start a new year, and it's great to make a whole bunch of resolutions that you, you won't keep. But um, 
but try this. Try, try to pick a Bible reading plan. In fact, maybe, maybe pick it with your, your redemption community if you're in one, or if you're, if you're married, pick it with your spouse and land on this plan and say, yeah, we're going to do this. We're going to read this plan. We're going to read the Bible. Be intentional about spending time with God and have a plan for it. It's a good thing, and you will, you will, it's a guarantee, be blessed by that. Vision. Vision as an attribute of people shaped by hope. Um, it, it's amazing what happens when, when you see something the way it ought to be. And then you come back and you see things the way they're not supposed to be. Now, sometimes that can create a sort of resentment for the broken things. And you just want to escape. But we are not people who escape and who abandon. We are people who are called to go forward. And as we go forward, we go forward into the world. We go forward. We, we, we see sin and we don't, we don't separate ourselves from it. We, we go towards it and want to help redeem people who are broken and hurt. We do it only by the grace of God, but that's what we're called to. There's a way, there's a way to, to fight sin and to still be around it. And you, you have to, you know this, you have to use wisdom in those decisions. But that's what we're called to, to go into it. And, and the way we see the world matters so much. If you see the new city, the city of God waiting for us on the horizons like those old saints saw, they saw it and they greeted it from afar, and you see the way things ought to be with justice and mercy and peace and love, it makes us come back to this world and say, I want to make it like that. I want to work towards that. Um, there, there's a story that, that really affected me. I heard it a few years ago. And it's a story of an old, really old Puritans from the 1500s. Um, two fellows named Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley. And they were in England, in, 15, in the 1550s, at that time, uh, the, the queen was Mary, sometimes called Bloody Mary. She killed a lot of Protestant Christ- Christians because she was Catholic and she was forcing all of the bishops, all of the, the pastors to, to sort of bow the knee to the Roman Catholic Church. And you have to say, yes, I believe the Pope is authoritative. Yes, I believe in all these doctrines of the Catholic Church. But, but the consciences of those men said, no, I, I can't. I, I read the word of God and it doesn't let me have a mediator outside of Christ. I read the word of God and I see that the authority has been given to Jesus. I read the word of God and see that we are all high priests. So, so they said, no, we couldn't. Well, they were thrown in prison and in extreme cases, they were executed. And so this man, Hugh Latimer, these men, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley were going to be executed and they were, they were on the stake. They were gonna be burned at the stake. I think a terrible way to die. And, and as they were there, even as the fires were starting. Hugh Latimer, in the midst of this, looks over to Nicholas Ridley and he says, take heart. We have lit a candle that by the grace of God shall never be put out. They fought for the gospel. They fought for the word of God. They fought for the truth of God. He said, take heart. So he's getting burned at the stake and he says, take heart. I see a future where God's goodness will break into this world more and more and more. We have lit a candle that will never be put out. That's hope. Now, let me just compare that to this picture. Um, I'll just use a, a man as an example. So a man wakes up, he's got a nice house, several bedrooms, um, he's got a, a few cars in the garage, he has a, a good job. He's able to provide for his family. It's a good thing. He wakes up, he, he goes downstairs, 
his wife is already up, and, and she's made breakfast. It's a, what a blessing for him. And uh, he gets a big, tall glass of freshly squeezed orange juice and, and a good fair trade cup of coffee and sets it down. And, and he sits down at the table before he has to go to work, and he, he opens up his laptop. It's probably a MacBook Air. And, uh, and he looks at the news headlines. And he says, ah, honey, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. Do you see the difference in how we view the world and how it shapes us? One man is getting burned at the stake and he says, take heart, we have changed the world for the glory of God. And another man has all of these amazing things, all these gifts and goodness around him and he looks at the headlines and says, ah, this world, ugly, broken, I can't wait to get out of it. That's essentially what that's saying. And I want to push back on us that we don't think like that, that we don't see the world only as broken, though it is, but it's not only ugly. God is a God of beauty, and he is, as Jesus says, I am making all things new. He does that mostly through us, his people. So we are a people shaped by hope, a people who are supposed to go forward into the world, who are called to redeem the world in all the ways we can, relying on the grace of God, and, and finally, an attribute here of strength and courage. Joshua leading the people into the promised land. I, I love this story. It's so, it's so striking to me that, that the one promise that God gives to Joshua, he gives him one, one promise. He doesn't say, you're going to have all the wisdom of Solomon. He doesn't say, you're going to be a, an, a, an amazing psalmist and poet and king like David. He doesn't say, you're going to be a prophet like Moses, who you were trained up under when they were led through the wilderness. He says one thing. He gives one promise to Joshua. He says, I will be with you. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I will be with you. And you know why I love that? Because that's a promise that God gives to us here this morning. He doesn't promise us all the riches or all the wisdom, all the fame or recognition or perfect strategic thinking or intelligence or fortitude, or whatever it might be, he promises, I will be with you. I will be with you. And, and God looks at us and says, so stand on the ledge, and look at the world, and, and when I say jump, jump, and I catch you, and I have you, I have your back. If God is for us, who can be against us? Think about the courage that that makes. And, and I just want to point out there that God could have told the people of God at the edge of the promised land, that's where they were, with Joshua leading them, to say, you stay here, I'm going to go clean it out with my consuming fire, and come on back, and I'll get you, and then I'll be ready to go. But he didn't do that. He didn't do that. He said, no, you're coming with me. In fact, Joshua, you're going to lead the people, you're going to march into the land and, and fight for a better world, for a good world and I will be with you, and I will never leave you, and I will never forsake you. God never promises to us that that, that mission will be easy. He never promises that faith will be easy. He never promises that forgiveness is simple or that reconciliation is convenient. God promises that it's good, and we should take heart. The candle has been lit that will never go out in this world. So, in closing, I, I just want to share with you that th- this, this view of the world, um, I love this, I get, to, I get to give my daughter a blessing every night. 
And I put my hand on her head, and she calls it a night blessing. Give me the night blessing. And it's, uh, it's from Romans 15, 13. And so that one I have memorized because I say it every night, and, and if I miss it, she corrects me. because um, she has it memorized better than me, apparently. But I love it. May, may the God of hope give you all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. What a promise. What a promise that is. This is what the conclusion of the, the chapter 11 of Hebrews is. It's chapter 12. Even though it's a different chapter, really this sort of transition is the conclusion. And here's our conclusion. Hebrews 12, 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us also lay aside every weight and, in, and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. Let us run the race with endurance. We look to Jesus. The runners don't look backward while they race. They look forward to the finish line. And so we stand on these promises of God. We stand on the thankfulness. Past thankfulness begets present joy, which begets future hope. So 2014, it's right around the corner. And and as we look at that year and look at the future, let's be a people shaped by hope who desire a better land, a better country, a better city, and who go out trusting God to work towards it. People shaped by hope where we're freed to love and to shape the world into a place of more and more goodness and beauty and peace and love. Amen? Let's pray.